0: love seeing this the church is growing right so um so last month in june i got a opportunity to uh, go on a vacation with my wife brooke and uh, i got to go to europe for the very first time of my life and uh one of the first kind of places that we went to in europe was um uh, in italy and we started in the city of venice and let me tell you venice is exactly like how you see them in the movies right it's a city that's built on water uh, so there's, like, no cars, no roads anywhere. Everything is just waterways and canals, and people drive their boats everywhere. They drive their boats to work and then drive their boats to go to dinner at night. It's just this, like, really beautiful, like, romantic city, right? And, uh, and, and aside from, like, all the, like, best pastas and pizzas and gelatos that I ate, um, one of the highlights for me is actually um, kind of being in Europe was, was actually seeing the rich history of the church, uh, so uh, one of the kind of most famous attractions of Venice is this area called St. Mark's Square. It's called St. Mark's Square because to the eastern side of this square is a old cathedral called the St. Mark's Basilica, which is a church that was built to commemorate uh, who we know as Mark. So who is this Mark, right? Uh, so the, the Catholics call him Mark the Evangelist, and uh, and and although there are like many different theories as to who wrote the book of Marks so of the second. Gospel in, in the New Testament. Uh, one of the popular theories attributes the Gospel of Mark to Mark the Evangelist. right And Mark was also one of the first kind of disciples that went off to do the missions in the world in the first century. Uh, and in particular, he went down to northern Africa and planted the Church of Alexandria in Egypt. So if you guys hear about uh, like the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Coptic Church, some of you guys may be familiar with that term because earlier this year we saw a group of Coptic Christians that got killed right? Uh, If you hear those names of those churches, those are Mark's legacy. Those are the churches that he founded in the first century that has gone on through time and made it to this day. So as we were kind of visiting this church, we're walking through this cathedral, and everything inside was just beautiful. You know, every inch of the wall was covered with some kind of, um, you know, decorative um, representation of biblical stories, Uh, And I remember as we kind of walked towards the front, we kind of got to this altar area, the front altar of the church. And underneath this altar, I I remember seeing this big stone box. And on the stone box was an inscription uh, in Latin that says, Corpus Divi Marci Evangelistae, which in English means the body of Mark the Evangelist. So, of course, as I saw this, I got really curious. I wanted to know kind of what the background story is. And in my own research, I found out that It was the year 68 AD, so 60-year AD. Um, It was on the Easter Sunday of that year. Um, Mark was actually doing ministry in Alexandria, in northern Africa. And on Easter Sunday, he was taken out into the streets by a a mob in Alexandria, and they put a rope around his neck, and they dragged him through the streets. They didn't quite kill him that first day. Uh, Because they weren't sure if the Roman government will sanction this type of persecution against Christians. But later on that day, after they let him go, they realized that the government didn't do anything to intervene. So the very next day, they took him out again, put a rope around his neck, and dragged him through the streets until he was dead. And that is how Mark died. So centuries later, about 800 years later, two Venetian uh, merchants supposedly went down to Alexandria and stole his relics. And brought it back to Venice, and where it's venerated today, till, till this day. And I remember as I was standing in front of this this altar and seeing this this tomb of who, what was supposedly the body of Mark, who had supposedly authored the Gospel of Mark, right, the second book of the New Testament. I remember just feeling like I couldn't help but to be overwhelmed by the emotions, thinking about the way that Mark gave his life so that this gospel can go forth and this morning we're going to look at a story that was written in in, in the book of mark uh, particular mark chapter 8 verses 31 through 38 uh, but before we go ahead and talk about this story i want to give you a little bit of background a little bit of context of of kind of where this story is found so uh, this is actually the same story that is found in in two other gospels so uh, not only is it here in mark chapter 8 it's also found in matthew chapter 16 as well as luke chapter 9 And, uh, so this is a very famous story. Um, and, uh, this story happened during a time where Jesus had began his ministry already. And he's traveling from town to town, uh, preaching and teaching, telling people that the kingdom of God has come near. And then along the way, he's doing all these miraculous signs of healing, right? Um, so of course, with all these miracles as he's performing, he's drawing a crowd. So everybody started gathering to come see this guy and wondering who he was, right? So the story that, um, kind of came right before the passage we're going to look at this morning is this interaction uh where jesus is kind of asking his disciple you know who are all the people saying that i am and then he finally asks peter who do you say i am and peter for the first time confessed that jesus is the messiah right And some translations said that Peter, peter confessed that he's the christ right which means the savior and and in the account in matthew we see this interaction between jesus and peter where he kind of gave him this affirmation say like yes you are like you're right And, like, this was revealed to you by the Father. And then kind of this high call, the highest call that Peter perhaps got for his life's mission is when Jesus said to him that, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, right? The name Peter means rock. And it was at this place, in this conversation, that Simon Peter was given this new name as Peter, right? Um, So... I want you guys to remember this interaction right because this is like a really nice good positive interaction between Jesus and Peter and then we're going to dive into the story found in Mark 8 uh, it's going to be on the screen if you can, you can follow along or you can look in your Bibles but uh, mark chapter 8 verses 31 through 38 it reads he then Jesus um, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, And follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. This is God's word. So, two very important interactions in the story, right? So, the first one is kind of like this idea that Jesus was kind of predicting his own death for the very first time. And the kind of reaction that he got from his disciples, like some strong reactions. And the second piece is when Jesus kind of turned and gave this true call of what a true sacrificial discipleship looks like. Right? So this is kind of like the two main, if I were to summar, summarize this passage, these are the two main interactions that we see in this passage. So I like to kind of take us through both of them and kind of unpack it a little bit. Uh, so the first one, right, Jesus was kind of speaking for the first time on this subject of he actually is going to be subjected to suffering and rejection an execution, right? And upon hearing this, Peter was one of his closest disciples and one of his closest friends. Hearing this, he kind of reacted as a strong objection, right? So we oftentimes wonder why, right? So like Peter took Jesus aside and began rebuking him. Can you imagine like being the disciple, taking God inside and start yelling at God, right? That's essentially what Peter was doing. Um, so it, it makes you wonder why, you know, why did Peter have such a strong reaction? I could think of maybe two reasons, right? One is perhaps um, it was out of good intentions, right? Uh, I think nobody wants to see their friends being in harm's way. So, you know, essentially, Peter is basically saying that, you know, I don't want these things to happen to you because I don't want to lose you, right? And then the second reason, perhaps, is because maybe Peter had a misunderstanding at ju- as, as to just what the mission of the Messiah is all about, right? Uh, because this is a time when kind of the Jewish people were re- living under the rule of the Roman Empire, and that they didn't have a lot of rights or power in this society. And they're kind of like being oppressed by this Roman institution, right? So, uh, and I think in Peter or many of the disciples' minds, they've been waiting for the Savior, but they don't really know what the mission of the Savior is. Uh, perhaps they were thinking that, you know, the hero is supposed to come and be on our side and help us kind of defeat those people who have been oppressing us, right? So when Jesus said that, no, actually, I'm going to be, like, suffering and I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed— Peter's like, no, and, you know, like, you're supposed, like, you're the good guy. You're supposed to be on our side and save us, right? Uh, so perhaps there was this misunderstanding. But it doesn't matter regardless of the reason behind the, uh, why Peter reacted in such a way. If we think about it, both of these reasons are motivated somewhat by kind of Peter's own desire of wanting to keep Jesus around so that he would be safe, right? It's the, I, kind of this idea of, like, I want to, like, have this nice life that you're going to provide for me, and I don't have to worry about anything, Right? So then at that, Jesus responded strongly, right? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So remember that story that I told you before this passage, that Peter had just been affirmed as the rock, in which kind of the church's foundation is going to be built on? Like here, like Jesus comes with like one of the most loaded insults recorded in the history of the Bible, right? I mean, how would you like to be known as the disciple that was called Satan by by God himself? Right? That's pretty loaded, right? So it's like, you wonder why Jesus reacted such a strong way. Well, who is Satan? Well, if we kind of read the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel, we know that Satan is, is the ultimate tempter, right? Satan is is essentially the devil that is to the opposite of who God is. And what Peter wanted here to keep Jesus around, to to potentially talk Jesus out of the mission that he was sent for, is the ultimate last temptation that jesus experienced and if you think about it it's it's very much like when when jesus was tempted in the wilderness by satan satan himself you know said that he's going to give jesus all this world as long as jesus bows down and worships him and that's when jesus said you know away from me satan so it's a very kind of similar interaction is that peter what peter was essentially suggesting is to talk jesus out of this ultimate mission that god has sent him to so it's interesting because um, I'm gonna keep, I am going keep referencing the, the, the passage of Matthew because it has a little bit more details as to what the conversation of this story was recorded as. Uh, because in this conversation, not, in, the, in the Matthew account, not only did Jesus get behind me, Satan, he also said that you are being a stumbling block to me. So if you think about this idea that just moments ago, Peter was affirmed by God as being the rock in which the church will be built on. And with a couple of dumb comments, he became a stumbling block. Instead of the rock that's going to serve as the foundation of the church. Quite a contrast there, right? See, I think Jesus did this. Jesus reacted in such a way because he did not want Peter, for even for a moment, to entertain the idea of that there's another way to accomplish God's will. And he said that, you know, get behind me because the position of a disciple is supposed to be behind their masters. So this call to get behind me is a a call for Peter to fall back in line to his rightful position. And Jesus goes on to say that don't be concerned with the concerns of humans, right? You need to be concerned with the concerns of God. And one of those things, human concerns is about saving ourselves, right? How do we get ourselves out of trouble? How do we get those who are oppressing us to go away? But God's concern is more about how do we save the whole world from the, the power of death and destruction that sin has brought about? And that this is the way it must happen, right? Jesus said he must suffer and he must be killed. Because Jesus here is is defying this idea of his disciples thinking of him as coming as like a conquering king, but rather instead as a suffering servant. So Jesus is laying down this reality to them. And then the next part of the passage talks about how he invites the disciples into that path as well. So if you look at verses 34 through 38... We see this high call to discipleship, right? Jesus is whoever wants to be my disciple, right? You are called to two things. One is self-denial, and two is carry your own cross, right? Self-denial and carry your own cross, right? Self-denial basically means to say no to yourself and to say yes to the things of God, right? But what about this carrying the cross piece? I think we oftentimes miss this piece. This is an interesting point because I think, you know, many of us have heard this message before or or this passage before, right? This idea of, hey— um, deny yourself and carry the cross, right? It makes sense. We're Christians, right? We talk about the cross all the time, but I think the interesting point that we oftentimes miss is that when Jesus said this, this actually took place. This conversation took place before the crucifixion of Jesus ever took place. So there had never in history been an association between the cross and Christianity yet in this point. Do you guys see that? See, because, like, what does the cross symbolize? In modern days, in our minds, we think of the cross as a symbol of forgiveness, of grace, of love. Because over 2,000 years, that's what the symbol of the church has been, right? But in the first century, in the Roman Empire, the cross was nothing more than a Roman execution instrument that was reserved to torture the worst kind of criminals. Criminals were forced to carry their own cross on their back and march to the place where their gruesome execution is going to take place while bystanders and mobs gather to watch for sport. That's what a cross meant. And Jesus was calling them to carry their cross like that. So this, this call to self-denial and to carry the cross basically means that being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus, it means that you need to say no to yourself and you need to say yes to God, even to the point of being willing to live a life every day as if you are carrying your own execution instrument and marching to your death facing ridicule and mockery on the way so why would anyone want that why would anybody want that because jesus goes on and says whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it basically what he's saying here is that as disciples your priority in life is is is, is reordered it's switched it's turned upside down that your life is now no longer about an investment in yourself and what you will be, what you will gain, what what you will become in this world. But your life now is about joining God's plan of how a fallen world is to be redeemed. Your job now is to play an active role in God's narrative of saving the world. Because this, in fact, is the best kind of life that you can choose. This is the best kind of life that you can choose. Better than any kind of investment that you can put into yourself. And what is this God's grand plan? What is God's grand plan to, to, to kind of save the world? I think to understand the death of Jesus, we have to actually understand the sacrificial system that has been a part of the Jewish tradition for centuries. Right? So, cause because ultimately God's grand plan is to abolish the sacrificial system that began in Genesis. So if you guys remember when Adam and Eve Kind of committed the first sin, and Genesis says that the Lord made garments of skin to cover Adam and his wife. Right. So, like, what is garment of sin? A uh, skin. That's it. That's an animal, right? So, like, basically, what it, what happened here is an animal was killed so that its skin can be taken to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, to cover the shame of the people that sinned. So, like this. So, this very act that God kind of killed an animal and provided the skin for them began this whole centuries long tradition of sacrifice sacrificial system where one life is taken in order for another life to be atoned one life needs to die in order for another life of of mistake of wrongness to be redeemed so the sacrifice became kind of this tradition uh, that we see throughout the o- Old Testament, right? So like, as you guys see the, the Israelites move about and the, all these stories in the Old Testament, we see that from place to places they will, they will offer up burnt offerings to the Lord, right? That sacrifice. And I think it's interesting because you see this sacrificial system as like almost a universal thing across cultures, right? I mean, I grew up in a family where my dad's side of the family were, were like more Buddhist and they like had all this ancestral worship stuff going on. And every like, religious holiday there will be like some act of like offering some animal that's been killed and cooked to offer to the gods right so like you see this in indigenous cultures and tribal cultures like this this act of sacrifice becomes became like this universal thing that people feel like in order to atone for all the wrong things that they have done like some life needs to be taken in order to pay for that So the ultimate plan of God is that this ultimate sacrifice was taken upon the life of God himself. Like we see oftentimes Jesus being referred as the Lamb of God, right? But if you think about it, why was he called the Lamb of God? Because in the first century Jewish culture, if you see a lamb, you see that rather than like just a cute animal. It's actually an item that's reserved for sacrificing. So Jesus being the Lamb of God is this idea of that God is going to be killed in order to pay for all the wrong that has ever been done. Ultimately, Jesus' death means that God himself laid down his own life for the sake of humanity. And this is what Jesus said when he meant that he must suffer and he must be rejected and he must be killed. And no one is to be be in his way because this is the only way. And if you think about it, there's no other religious system in the world that we have observed yet where a God had given his own life for his people. Only Jesus has done this. This is the gospel. That only Jesus has done it. That his life was taken so that the lives of all the world will be atoned. And to be his disciple, we are called to model our lives after this call, to deny ourselves, to carry our cross, following Jesus at the cost of ourselves, surrendering everything that we've had, everything that we have, and everything that we will ever want for the sake of the gospel and even to the point of losing our lives if it's necessary in order for us to c- proclaim that so that this world will know what was done for them. And this is what it ultimately means to be unashamed of Jesus, to live unashamedly for Jesus. And ultimately this call is to model our lives after the suffering servant. So you know, as I stood in front of that that tomb in, in Venice that day, instead of the in front of the tomb of Mark, you know, I wondered what went through his mind as he authored this very passage when he wrote this story down. I went to what I wonder what went through his mind. I wondered if he knew that he will one day be called to answer the same call himself. I wonder that being dragged. I wonder if, if he knew that being dragged through the streets by the mob to his death in Alexandria would be the cross that he would carry one day. And that by giving his life for the gospel that day, he actually founded, he truly found his life. And 2,000 years later, we get to sit here in this church and look at this story that was written, where blood was spilled over the fact that, so that this, this story can go forth. You see, I think the reality of carrying the cross is no easy task. See, as Jesus called his disciples to do this, he himself was the first to embody it and demonstrate it, It is is he not? So I think to know what it's really like to live out this call, I think we need to really actually spend a moment to examine that last journey that Jesus took carrying his own cross to his death. And I feel like, you know, I read this story all my life. Like this passage was actually like the theme verse for my youth group when I was growing up, but I never actually truly understood this passage. Until something traumatic happened in my own life. Uh, some of you guys have heard this story before, but September 27th of 2008, it was just about a month before I first stepped foot into this church and be, became a part of this community. But September 27th of 2008 was the worst day of my life. I have not had a worse day that, since, and not had a worse day before that, and not a worse day since. Um, so this, that was my first year kind of living in Florida. I had just kind of Settled into a new apartment, I was going to graduate school and working, uh, and my parents decided to come visit me on that trip. Um, so they, they they came for about a week, and uh, on the, the the two days before they were supposed to leave, uh, we went running. It was a Saturday morning. My, my dad and I went running in the morning. He was an avid runner, and uh, you know when when we were done, I was going to go home, and he said he wanted to go and, and sit in the hot tub of my apartment complex for a little bit just to relax. Uh, So he did, and I went home to take a shower and all this kind of stuff. And uh, a little time has gone by, and he didn't come back. So my mom asked me to go down to the pool to get my dad because we needed to get ready to go um, to lunch that day. And when I got to the pool, I didn't see him anywhere. I saw his clothes and his sandals next to the hot tub, but he wasn't in the hot tub, and there was just nobody there. And I looked back and forth. I scanned through the, the, the pool area, and to my horror my eyes rested on his motionless body laying on the side in the bottom of the eight-foot end of the pool. And the water was completely still as if nobody had been in it for years. So I jumped in. I pulled him out of the water. I started screaming for him. We got him out of the water, and all the commotion drew drew a whole bunch of crowd there. And I started shaking him. I started administering CPR on him. We called 911. Finally, EMS got there, and they loaded him into the ambulance, and he was on his way to to the emergency room. Of course, my mom and I were in a state of shock, so we were in no shape to drive ourselves. Uh, So the police officer that was there that was taking questions from us offered to take us in his squat car. So we got into his squat car, and we were on our way to the hospital. I remember he was just driving as a part of normal traffic. Sirens wasn't on or anything, and I was just, like, jumping out of my seat with anxiety. I was like, why aren't we getting there faster? I remember my mom was in a state of shock. She had like her, her head kind of resting in the seat in front of her, and I had my arm around her trying to comfort her. And I remember we came to a stoplight, and at this stoplight next to in the, the street corner was a uh, a a gas station, and it was a Saturday morning, as I mentioned. So there was actually like a group of teenagers, high school students there. Uh, I think they're part of some high school team, and they're like doing a car wash to do like some kind of fundraiser uh, for for their cause. And I remember sitting there looking out the window, and when the teenagers saw me and my mom sitting in the back of the police car, they just automatically assumed that we had gotten in trouble and had been arrested. And they started motioning to each other and they started pointing at us and laughing. That in the weakest and most helpless moment of my life, where my mind was filled with anxiety and fear and sorrow and feeling sick to my stomach, not knowing what was going to happen to my dad, the world outside the window... It was not a world full of compassion or sympathy, but instead it was a cruel act of ridicule and mockery. So long story short, my dad died that morning. Uh, everything was too late. It was the worst day of my life. But as I reflect, as time goes on, and that, as I reflect back onto that day, I couldn't help but to be reminded of, wasn't this kind of like the journey that Jesus took when he carried his cross on his last road? To the place of execution, that in his weakest and most helpless moment, perhaps he was also f- filled with anxiety and fear and sorrow, and perhaps feeling sick to his stomach. And that those who were closest to him had already deserted him, and that those mob around him had no compassion or sympathy, but instead they had met he was met with cruel ridicule and mockery as well. And in that moment, Jesus focused, chose to focus on the mission that he was sent for. And he remained obedient. And he saw in that moment, in the faces of the mob, the very reason why he must die. So that this world that is so lost could be reconciled to the Father who loves them. And for this great act of love, you and I are called to follow after that example. To model a life not as conquering kings or queens trying to make... name for ourselves but to model a life after god who became a suffering servant so what does that look like today what does that look like for our lives today i think people oftentimes ask me you know what exactly is it that you do with inner varsity you know what exactly is is campus ministry i think the simple answer to that question is found in this passage right is that during some of the most formative years of a young person's life we would nurture in them a kind of intimacy with jesus that would inspire them to live the rest of their life every day denying themselves and carrying the cross for the sake of the gospel in other words in an environment where the world is luring them with all kinds of options and opportunities and what they could become and what kind of name they could make for themselves we disciple our students in such a way where they will say no to themselves and then they will say yes to God's will, laying their life down if it comes to it. I think in some parts of the world, the literal sense of this call is a reality. Earlier this year, just you know, three months ago, three and a half months ago, on April 2nd, um, it was a Thursday. It was actually the Thursday before Easter this year. So kind of as Christians around the world, were getting ready to commemorate, you know, the night that Jesus would have his last supper with his disciples uh, and later on be betrayed that same night and be killed the next day as Christians around the world were getting ready to kind of celebrate this Easter season. in a small town kind of on the eastern part of Kenya uh, was a university campus called Garissa University College. And uh, on that Thursday morning around 5 a.m., four gunmen from the Al-Shabaab, extremist group entered that university campus and took they took hundreds of students hostage and they began kind of sorting through these students they sorted through these students and what ended up happening is they allow all the ones who identify themselves as muslims to go and they began executing those who identify themselves as christians at the end of that day a total of 148 students were killed and 79 of them were injured I remember sitting in my office over the next week as the news, more and more news stories about this particular incident started to come out. I learned that among the victims of this attack, there was a group of 22 Christian students who gathered to pray at 5 a.m. that morning. And it turns out that they were actually a part of what is essentially InterVarsity's sister fellowship over in the country of Kenya. And that gathered to pray at 5 a.m. that morning, and they were among the first to be killed. All 22 of them died. See, the call for these students to carry their cross was realized that morning. So what about us, right? Our reality is that we live here in a safe and free country, right? We live here in a country that's, you know, free of, you know, any kind of religious persecution, right? And, uh... And, and I think we would never face, like, the possibility of having a gun pointed at our face or a knife to our throat asking us to renounce our faith. I think in our churches, right, in, in this Sunday worship service or, like, in your house churches and small groups that we have on campus or prayer meetings that we might have, it will most likely never be interrupted in such a way like the story that I just told you, right? In this country, as long as we live here, we will most likely never have to face possibly being martyred for our faith. But I think it's for exactly that reason that I can't help but to, be, to feel worried about us sometimes. As my friend and colleague, Kamara, has said, you know, our reality is that while we live here comfortably and safely here in the United States, there are two kingdoms that are fighting over us. The kingdom of the, this world and the kingdom of God. They're fighting over us. That they're fighting to define who we are. And we may not be in the danger of a physical death but we are in an imminent danger of a spiritual death what do i mean by that because if you think about it every aspect of our society is set up as a desperate attempt for us to save our own lives is it not you know we have we have the most advanced medical technology compared to anywhere in the world aimed at fixing kind of any kind of health problem that we might have so that we can prolong our lives for as long as possible right from the moment that we are born we're given vaccines that will prevent us from getting sick and if we have something wrong with us or we get injured there's surgery that could put us under so we don't even have to feel the pain as we're being healed right and if we do feel pain there're pain meds that will wipe away those those pains so that's numb right and if you think about food we have now and the world produced enough food to feed 10 billion people. That's one and a half times more than the current world population. If the world ended its food production today, we could still survive for years because there's enough food, right? While, the world, while we have world hunger, this is also the, the other end of the dilemma, right? If you think about technology, like most of you guys grew up, you know, with your own smartphones, computers, internet, like any kind of information that you want is at a click of a finger, Right? Digital media, entertainment, like we have all these investment and money towards things that make sure we live a long life, but not only just a long life, but that our life wouldn't be boring, that would we'll be entertained all the time. Right? We live our lives as if it is for our, us to control. We live it with a sense of, of, of entitlement. Right? And, and, and can I tell you where that starts, quite frankly? It doesn't start in a place that is bad. It starts actually in inherently good things. It starts as young as we are little kids, and we're told that it starts with our efforts in studying. If you study hard, you can trade those efforts for good grades. If you have good grades, you can trade those to get into good schools. If you have good schools, that means that you can trade that for good jobs. And if you have good jobs, you can trade that for... All kinds of things that you want. Good houses, good cars, good food, good, good health, right? Isn't this the American dream, right? Isn't this why, the reason why so many of us, our families have immigrated to this country so that we can pursue after? But the reality is that the message of humanity here is loud and clear. The message of humanity here is that we want to live a life that is void of suffering. And we fool ourselves th- into thinking that as long as we study hard or we work hard, and we don't mess with those bad things like drugs, sex, or alcohol, it must mean that we're following Jesus. But let me tell you a life that is void of suffering is a life that is void of Jesus. Because Jesus' message tells us that to follow Him, suffering is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. So, how do I see this in my own context, in my work day? On campus, right? How do we call our students to carry the cross? Well, here are some little ways that I see, I have seen our own students do this every single day, right? I want to tell you some stories. I want to tell you about Chris Lee. I want to tell you about Chris when he first came to us three years ago. I remember he had kind of gotten involved a little bit, started hanging out, building a community around the university community on campus, and he started to think about about whether or not he wanted to consider. Uh, applying for leadership i remember one of the first conversations i had with chris about leadership is that he came to me and asked that if if it would be cool for him to apply for leadership so that he could use that to decorate his resume one day and i was like chris you got it all wrong that's not the right motivation behind serving right and and this was a time when school or tests or exams or papers or homework always came before his fellowship commitments But over the the years, I began to see Chris starting to trust trust Jesus. He started to say yes to Jesus more, even at the cost of himself. He started to say yes, not the easy yeses, but the hard yeses. Yeses that are, like, really hard to say. And he didn't always do a perfect job, but he began to deny himself more and more and more. And if you guys know Chris, you will know that this past year has been a particularly difficult year for Chris. Right? I think waiting on hearing back from dental school has really taken a toll on his life. But I'm confident to say that Chris is at such a different place now than he was three years ago. And I know this because I've been in constant conversations with him. And I want to say that if God were to decide to take dental school completely away from his future and from his life right now, Chris is in a place where he will be okay. And he will still choose to be obedient to whatever it is God's calling him to do. And that's the beauty of the way Chris has, has been asking this past year in his life that who is really seated on the throne of Chris Lee's life. Is it Chris Lee or is it Jesus? Is it Chris Lee or is it Jesus? And ultimately, Chris is choosing a life of denying himself and allowing that seat to be taken by Jesus. I want to tell you about Joyce Quock. See, Joyce's story has been a, a, a story about just this constant act of being challenged to take risks. See, up until this past year, Joyce really, if I were to be honest with you, has been spending the majority of her time in college being mostly alone. Uh, you know, by nature, Joyce is very introverted and shy, which nothing's wrong with that. But she filled a lot of her time with just kind of watching Netflix and drama at home. Uh, but earlier this year, we had a conversation about, you know, her wanting more in her life. And we actually discovered that as she was watching these drama and all these dramatic scenes and our TV shows... The question that she really is longing for deep down inside is, is, is she didn't believe that such an adventurous life could be her own life. And I invited her to, like, you know, you want if you want to live that kind of life, you come and you really follow Jesus. And this past year, this past summer, at a conference, actually, um, as she was kind of hearing the gospel being preached, uh, Joyce realized that she actually had never really truly kind of said yes to jesus she had been kind of doing the whole church thing mostly because everybody else around her and her family had been doing that and she actually made a first time decision and stood up and followed made a first time for a real decision to follow jesus this summer and with that decision she didn't want that decision to just just like be be like made this decision and just sit idly by but she wanted that decision to mean something so for this past summer already she's been meeting with me every other week with a team of other students through a process that we call apprenticeship where she is taking risks and exploring what leadership opportunities might look like on campus and and she just told told me a couple weeks ago that uh, while I was on vacation last month, uh, she went to one of our outreach events that's set up for the freshman orientation, and she was paired up with another student that's a little bit more shy than she is. And because of that, she decided that, you know what, I needed to step up so that, you know, otherwise we will not ever talk to anybody. So out of her comfort zone, she stepped up and started talking to all these freshmen that are coming, wondering if there's a community of faith for them. And this fall, she's going to be sacrificing a great deal of her time and commitment and more of her comfort zone to take risks to, to serve as one of our leaders that's going to influence more students that are just like her, who have spent time sitting by. I want to tell you about uh, another student named Krista. She actually graduated a couple years ago and about her story of, uh, of the surrender, uh, this total surrendering of trust or surrendering in trust. Um, see, Krista was actually in the same class as Monica Lee. They were in the same kind of class in, in, uh, in, in, in nursing school together. And Krista was actually one of the original members that was part of a small group that Monica Lee had planted at the College of Nursing at UCF to reach out to nursing students and equip them with spiritual care on top of just physical care. And being influenced by this ministry and, and, and hearing God's call at some of our conferences— even though she's worked so hard towards this nursing degree, and she has actually been working for the last couple of years and thriving as a nurse, she decided that, you know, God was pursuing her and, and calling her to something else. And so even after working so hard and finally making this career, she decided that she wanted to pursue full-time ministry. And what this decision means that she's going to face the disapproval of her father— He's already said some tough stuff to her. It means that she's going to renounce kind of being this pride in her family where her family gets to brag about her. And it means that she's going to give up a steady salary and a comfortable living. And all that for what? So that she could see more students know this deep love of Jesus that transforms the rest of their life. Krista is currently raising support and she'll be joining us as a missionary on campus serving through InterVarsity. See, these students have chosen not what is easier, but what is better. And why would they do that? I think they've all done that because they have experienced a kind of love from Jesus that inspires them to say no to themselves and to say yes to Jesus because they truly understand that saying yes to Jesus is the best kind of life that they can choose. And these are little ways that they are carrying their cross every day, letting Jesus define perhaps what they will major in, letting Jesus define what kind of career they will have, what kind of role they will play in society one day, what kind of neighborhood that they will be living in so that they can influence the most amount of lives around them, and how would they use their time and resources and money. And I think I'm confident to say that they would do it, even if the world around them makes fun of them, mocks them, ridicules them. I know that in this church, there's a lot of you guys that have been supporting Our ministry on campus and this is what your support and your prayer is helping us you're helping us write more stories like this in the lives of students and i hope that you'll continue to do that so i opened our message this morning by telling you a little bit about kind of the first place we visited in in europe uh, or in italy was venice and i want to close our message by telling you the last place that we visited uh so the last three days of our trip we were in rome right? And if you know anything about Rome, Rome is the center of what was once known as the greatest empire in the world, right? So, like, if you think of Rome, you you might think about the Colosseum, right, where hundreds of gladiators were were killed every day, literally, uh, just for entertainment, right? Uh, You might think of all these ancient ruins uh, where they were once government buildings uh, that were built over 2,000 years ago that are still there, statues, right? You might think of also the Vatican, uh, which is kind of this governing state of the Catholic Church and uh, uh, one of the most holy places that thousands of Catholics around the world make their pilgrimage to visit every year, right? So uh, on my last day on vacation, we got to visit uh, the Vatican City. And uh, one of the most famous things about the Vatican is uh, St. Peter's Basilica. Right so it's a church that's built to commemorate Peter this same Peter that we read about in our story today. And and if you know anything about Peter if you read through his journey with Jesus like his story is full of ups, ups and downs is not like he's the first kind of this fisherman that Jesus called he was one of the, he was Jesus' first disciple essentially right he left everything to follow Jesus. He was also the one that was bold enough to step out of the boat and start walking on water. Trusting in faith, but then also losing his his faith really fast and started sinking. Right, he's also the one that we, you know, talked about earlier that confessed Jesus as the Christ for for the first time. Right, and then being affirmed as the rock of the church, and then later on, you know, as soon as that happened, he was also rebuked by Jesus and called Satan. Right, it's full of ups and downs. Right, and we also know that Peter was the one that disowned Jesus three times, and later on, after Jesus' resurrection, was restored. By jesus three times right if we read peter's story we would know that peter's story was marked by a lot of risk taking but also a lot of mistakes right so it makes you wonder like so what became of peter right what happened to peter how did peter's story end so while we were visiting saint peter's um we got to go underneath the church and underneath the church uh was actually uh, a tomb and uh do we have pictures on that, I totally forgot to show you guys pictures of earlier things, right? Um, yeah, so if you will see, so this is like so this is actually kind of like the um, a, 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 an altar to this tomb. And if you look on the left side, I don't know if you can see on the left side right there, you will see a cross that is upside down. And the story behind this goes like this: in sixty in the year sixty four A.D., it was a time in the Roman Empire where uh, a lot of persecution on Christians were happening at a time that's called the great persecution. And during this period Peter was actually taken uh, and he was taken to place on the northwestern part of Rome called the Vatican Hill where he was crucified himself. But feeling unworthy to die the same way as his master, Peter actually requested to be crucified upside down. And that's why for the last 2000 years we have the symbol of upside down cross that uh, the church uses to commemorate the martyrdom that Peter met at the end of his life. And this basilica, this church, was built on top of what is believed to be his final resting place. You see, this Peter that we read about, that objected to Jesus' call, to Jesus' mission, ultimately lived up to his calling to carry the cross to, and he carried it in a literal sense. You see, the history of the church is marked by 2,000 years of faithful followers that have laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. And they did it all because they've tasted this love of Jesus that inspired them, and they want the world to know this love. And women and men have all answered to this call to carry their cross in every generation up to this day. How will you and I leave the same kind of legacy for the generations to come? see, in the short couple of weeks I was on vacation, uh, many things happened in our nation. I remember the, the, the week we were leaving, um, we left when the, our nation was horrified by this video of a McKinney police officer beating up a teenager. And then while I was gone, a racist Dylan Roof went into a church in Charleston and killed nine black brothers and sisters. And then the week that followed, Eight black churches across the South were burned down, including one here in Florida, for reasons of hate. I think we live in a time where the world is watching and waiting to see how the church will respond in this generation. And history is not going to remember us by what happens inside of these four walls. But rather, it's going to be how we as the church in this time, in this age, in this generation, marches out of these walls and live our lives carrying our crosses so that we can embody a Jesus who gave his life for this world. How will you and I do that? How will you and I do that so that a dying world will know his love? Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for this amazing love story that you have inspired us with. And we ask that as we leave here this week, you would reveal to us, you would be clear to us on practical ways on how we can deny ourselves and how we can live our lives modeling this act of carrying our cross. And that we wouldn't be doing it because these are awesome stories that I told and and it really inspires us, but we would be doing it because we really understood and truly tasted your love for us and that out of the intimacy that we would have with you is what inspires a life that is modeled after the life that you lived. So we pray, Lord, that this will be a generation where we would not be silent on the issues of brokenness, of death and destruction that's happening around us, the injustices. Uh, But we would live up so that stories like this, maybe 2,000 years from now, will be told in some church. And that we will be remembered as people who have remained faithful and followed after your call deny ourselves and to carry our crosses. So we ask that you would show us how to do that. And you would show us how to do that every single day of our lives. We thank you, we love you, we praise you in Jesus' name.